Artificial intelligence will completely transform our world. But what is AI? Why will it affect you? And how can you and your business survive and thrive through the AI revolution? Welcome to AI and You. Here is your host, author, speaker, and futurist, Peter Scott. Hello and welcome to episode 179. We are going to conclude the interview with Jan Tallinn this week. Jan became a billionaire through being a founding developer of Skype and the file-sharing application Kazaa, and he has co-founded and funded key institutions that address existential risk, or threat, to the existence of the human race. Among those are the Centre for the Study of Existential Risk, or CESAR, in Cambridge, England, and the Future of Life Institute, FLI, in the other Cambridge, Massachusetts. Caesar spawned and cohabits a building with the Leverhulm Center for the Future of Intelligence, and we've had two of their team on the show, Corinna Vold in episodes 1415 and John Zarilli in episodes 78-79. Last week, we talked about, well, a load of stuff, such as the AI pause letter, how governments could or will limit the development of AI, and much more. One of the other topics was the first credible argument I've heard for how a pause in AI development could actually be implemented. Jan said that governments could put controls on the hardware, the high-powered GPU chips. It's clearly not a strategy that's sustainable forever, because Moore's law would push the capability down into chips that were too cheap to regulate, but it could work for a while, and I'd not appreciated this possibility until Jan brought it up. You'll hear me get confused between code provers and proof checkers, just so you don't get tripped up when we get there. Jan was talking about computers being able to check the proofs of a mathematical theorem or algorithmic assertion, and I was initially thinking he was talking about proving software to be correct, which is something entirely different. And one other reference you'll hear in this interview is to Doug Lynette's Psych Project, which was perhaps one of the last gasps of the GoFi or good old-fashioned AI movement. A giant expert system that captured countless rules about the world that people patiently entered, documenting facts like a cat is a mammal, and a mammal is warm-blooded, and so it would be able to conclude that cats are warm-blooded, and the hope was that if you put enough of these facts in, it would reach an emergent point of being able to associate enough of them together to become generally intelligent. This didn't happen. I regret to say by the way, that Doug passed away recently. Okay, let's get back into the interview with Jan Talon. I'd like to talk about value alignment because we've been playing this kind of defensive game against AI, which is not wrong, but it does cast us in this this kind of no-win scenario. I think this is where the user comes from, that you know, no matter how much we keep going in the directions we've been talking about, you can always imagine how AI can defeat it somehow when it becomes smart enough and there's some sort mm-hmm. of emergent phenomenon or evolutionary breakthrough that wasn't anticipated. Now, if we could align AI's values with ours, and okay, a lot of hand-waving, I'll just say hand-waving, then, then maybe that's something that where it could take care of itself. 
Are you familiar with Stuart Russell's human compatible approach here and, and the research he's doing or the hope he's got for how AI could not make catastrophic alignment errors? Yeah, I think there's like a more generally, there is like a group of correlated ideas, which perhaps could be summarized as kind of probably safe systems. And I think they're, I'm aware of like three or four different initiatives that are overlapping to some degree, but the kind of the common denominator there is that instead of just building these end-to-end black boxes, we start building frontier AIs kind of step-by-step and using the previous generation of AI, or like, let's put it like using the current generation of AI to prove that the next step that we are about to take would be safe according to our ability to specify what is safe. Mm. And the kind of the fundamental insight is that there are three options when it comes to kind of checking or verifying. You can use humans to verify whether the next step is safe. You can use AI to verify whether the next step is safe. And the third option is you can use proof checkers that are not human and not AIs, but like a simple pieces of code to verify that the next step is safe. And obviously using humans, humans are very fallible and probably can be gained once they get smart enough. Using AI has the problem that like, how do we know to trust AI when AI says that, yep, next generation is safe. But using proof checkers, we actually have a good story why we should trust proof checkers. Maybe those proof checkers are not equivalent to the kind of proof checkers that I was exposed to in my undergraduate. I think they're exactly equivalent. Because those weren't viable for more than a dozen lines of code, they were the combinatorial explosion of paths. Yeah, you're talking about impossible. You're talking about provers, not proof checkers. Okay, and that's the thing. We're like proving is hard, so that's why we leave it to AI. It's AI's job to figure out how to prove things, and AI is getting like really, really good now. Like I think there's already a few projects that are using AIs to prove things mathematically mm-hmm. that humans haven't proved yet. So like AI proofs are just going to be really good soon, if not already. But proof checkers are simple. So a proof checker is simple code. You just like look at the produced proof. This thing is was hard to prove. And then you do the easy job of checking whether the proof was correct. And that's the fundamental insight. There's like a fundamental asymmetry between proving that we can lead to AI and checking, which we then like use our simple oh, proof checkers. Sorry, I thought you were talking about something proving that code was correct. Yeah, AI will do that. That will be the job of AI. Mm. So we have like a generation X or generation N of AI whose job will be to prove things about the next generation N plus one. And then we use our proof checkers to verify whether the nth generation of AI did a correct job. There's something in connection with value alignment that I've been wondering about with respect to the large language models, because as essentially these next word completion models they should have been predicting what was plausible given their inputs, but they have no concept of fact or truth. And Oh, that's just false. The totally true, which is very interesting. I would just point oh, to, yeah, yeah. Oh. there has been like massive advances in uh, mechanistic interpretability recently. So just in a few weeks, in the last few weeks, there have been papers out which just like demonstrate you can take a trained and Max Tegmark, my colleague at Future of Life Institute, he has one of his papers along with one of his students, I think, where they basically show that you can take a trained neural network and then apply like a linear classifier to the weights of it. Mm-hmm. 
and then see, look at other weight activations even. So you can look, you can do the sort of EEG on a working right. large language model and you will get just like a very confident classifier, very confident lie detector basically. Yeah, so lie detectors have like pretty much been sold now. The large language model knows if it's lying and we can also tell when it's lying using these lie detectors. By lying, are you referring to hallucination? By lying, I mean saying facts, making statements mm -hmm. that it like internally knows are not true when it comes to this like the rest of the world model. Right. What I'm getting at is where does that idea that the statement is true or not come from? And it's my hypothesis that that comes from ingesting so much text that there was enough agreement in that text as to certain predicates that it formed the notion that these were the predicates to output under certain circumstances, and they correspond with our idea of truth. But it's not like these were programmed into it as truth, like with a model like Psyche, Doug Lanat's thing, which was programmed with millions of facts that were known to be true. Yeah, so I think like LLMs ultimately, when you look at it at the level, sufficiently higher level of abstraction, form the concept of truth, just like humans do. So like we look at the world and see like which things are consistent mm. and we call them kind of true features of the world model. Right. If we see a contradiction, then we try to figure out how to resolve that contradiction. And if we like do it skillfully, then we have another true fact in our arsenal. So I think that's how it works. So like if it has claimed that Rome is the capital of mm. Germany, then it will like contrast it to other facts that it has in its arsenal and then kind of conclude that it must be false, but like in the current context, I have to say that, so it will say that knowingly that it is false. So to connect this with value alignment, if uh, truth can be an emergent feature of a large language model from its training, could value alignment be an emergent feature through the same process? Unfortunately not. So it, it goes back to basically David Hume when he pointed out you can't get ought from ease. Truth is something that is, you can look at the world or look at the evidence in language model case. You can look at the tokens that you're being fed and see what are the claims that are consistent with the data that you're getting. Whereas values are something that you need something extra. Like the world, the tokens will not tell you that your values are incorrect because values are subjective, at least in the default paradigm rather than, I mean, there's debate about whether hmm. a moral realism is true or not. Moral realism is the philosophical stance that good and bad actually are features of the world. And in some ways they are because we are physical systems. So like if you learn some values, there is some physical process that generated it. So like, I think it's not entirely incorrect to say that morality too is rooted in reality. But it's, I think David Hume was correct in an important sense that values are much less coupled to reality than the facts are. I feel like if we're going to get any more into philosophy, I need a drink. <clears throat> and <laughs> I just finished reading David Chalmers' book, Reality Plus, and my head is still spinning from that. So maybe that I'll great. leave that for now. Just to pivot a little bit here on type of risk, is there a risk that the AI could impose the values of Silicon Valley on the world just by the way that it's trained that it will sort of push out these ethics that are the default in Silicon Valley that prioritize work over family, work insane hours without protesting, a sort of semi-libertarian opposition to social safety nets and things like that are the kind of the sort of default stands there. If these large language models are trained 
out of there? Do you think that they might end up surreptitiously spreading that kind of culture around the world? So I think there are like two very different scenarios in the case where the values come from the fine-tuning part, where there indeed is like a lot of feedback about what's right and what's not wrong, then yes, there is like this danger and the LLMs have already been criticized for being kind of like too left-leaning, etc. But that really importantly, like this comes from the part that happens after the systems have been summoned. P in ChatGPT stands for pre-training. This is the thing that they do before you start training. Or like this is the... I would call it summoning part. And they're like, there's no, no values. There are no controls about what kind of values the system has. It is just given like a lot of data, mm. like a petabyte of data and like megawatt of electricity. And then mm. there are no controls over, over what kind of values this system will have when it emerges. But they decided which data to train it on. Sure. But like, this is like very... There's the bias. Yeah, it's correct that you will get some kind of uh, ability to nudge things. But like, I don't think we currently know which way it nudges. So it is kind of like pretty, pretty random influence over the emergent mind. Hmm. I want to revisit now something you said earlier about your friend with the child, looking at the child, realizing or thinking that it's going to be inferior to AI, which is a sort of depressing stance. And I want to see if we can pull some kind of optimistic rabbit out of a hat here, which is something that FLI has been doing They've been having these story contests. Uh, yeah, world building, world building.ai. World building, where they basically said, look, we've got enough dystopian scenarios. Give us the scenarios where everything works out well. You know, they lived happily ever after with AI and then tell us how that happened. And that has the advantage that in serving the X-Risk community in that it's all very well to say, we don't want all these things to happen. But if we don't have something to run towards as well as to run away from, mm -hmm. that's a one-sided view. What do you think about the possibilities for wildly positive outcomes? I mean, if you survive, then there are going to be like two possibilities. One dystopian, dystopian plus plus scenario is what's known as S-Risk, suffering risk where we kind of, we don't die, but we wish we could. Luckily, these are like very, they're much, much more unlikely than even the good outcomes, I think. So like you have this peak scenario where we just go extinct. And then you have like this scenario where you don't go extinct. And there are like a small fraction of those is that we get these S risks. And most of it is we actually get a good outcome is my current understanding. I generally kind of shy away from describing very kind of like good positive futures, because I just don't trust myself to be able to, whenever you add details to the thing where that includes superhuman intelligent agents, uh, you're almost certainly going to be wrong. So what I prefer to do is to give like some desiderata, like what things we do want from the world, and then thereby kind of like constrain the future. So we can, we can think about like, one thing that I've been saying for like more than a decade now is that fun is fundamental. You can get happiness out of fun, but not fun out of happiness. So there should be lots of fun. Mm -hmm. And lives should have meaning. We shouldn't just be kind of playing the effective like our actions should have consequences. That's another desiderata. Like if you are just like living in this constant video game, that's probably also dystopian according to human values. There shouldn't be no fundamental coercion. So like there should be optionality to choose. If you don't like certain kind of 
set of constraints you should be able to switch and a different set of constraints when it comes to politics or economics or whatnot and things like that i think uh, these are important desiderata to have and of course like lots of conscious experiences in the rest of the universe it sounds like a bill of rights for the digital age or even a post-human age if we look at the possibility that the ai could lead to in whatever time frame a evolution in the human species again i'm tending towards the optimism part here but what if i wonder the resolution of this conflict between the evolution of ai and the continuation of the human species converged intersected in transhumanism in that the answer mm. is some combination of the two some symbiosis have you thoughts about that oh yes i think this is like a firm property of like glorious future but it's important to combine it with a non-coercion mm. constraint. So like nobody should be right. kind of having AIs implanted mm. in their brain yeah. or like uploaded against their will. So like it should be like a informed consent. Right. Thanks for bringing that up because that's the first place that people go on hearing that is the dystopian yeah. side of that. But again, I'm looking for the optimism side of this. And I think I've got the same view as you that it's either that's an all or nothing kind of outcome with that sort of very narrow band in between, which is still pretty bad. And when we are traditionally given some predictions about the future that say this could turn out really bad or it could turn out really good, the response most people have is, yeah, well, I guess we'll just, you know, meander down the middle, muddle through like we always have. My sense is that that's not possible in this case, that there's too much volatility. It's sort of like a pencil mm -hmm. balanced on its point tipping over. It's going to go one way or the other, but it's not going to stay balanced on its point. That's sort of an intuition. Do you have feelings and thoughts about that as a driver for where we're going? Yeah, yeah, I, I basically agree. I think there are sort of like attractors that are stable mm -hmm. in this outcome space. And one of them is like everyone's dead, because if everyone's dead, everyone remains right. dead. That's an attractor. Or like, yeah, we kind of like solve all existential risks and have some other stable equilibrium that is a utopian. So to wrap up here, what's your next? steps in driving the world towards sanity and survival? Yeah, so for the, for the last decade or so, I've been really supporting people who are kind of doing AI companies' homework in terms of AI safety research. I think I will kind of continue doing that, but it's currently becoming increasingly clear that the research is not going to be there in time. So my focus for the foreseeable future will be on kind of regulatory interventions and kind of like trying to educate lawmakers and kind of uh, helping and perhaps hiring lobbyists to try to make the world safer. Well, thank you. I'll provide some pointers to your resources in the show notes and afterwards. Jan Talon, it has been a great privilege having you on the show. Thank you for taking the time to talk with us and thank you for everything you've done to help guide us on the straight and narrow towards a better future. Thank you very much. Those are great questions. That's the end of the interview. I've observed before how we're now hearing less skepticism from orthodox computer scientists about the existential risks of AI than we did up to a year ago. And it's worth noting that it took a lot more courage in that earlier period to fly that flag than it does now. And people like Jan took a lot of flack for it. Somewhere around 2017, we reached what I call the peak terminator phase when anyone talking about this in the media could be assured that there would be a picture of the Terminator run next to the article. Now, 
Thanks in no small part to the tireless generosity of Jan, we live in a world that's more aware of the issues. Although, that world certainly has an amazing innate ability to simultaneously freak out at and also blithely ignore the issues. Feels like being in the movie Don't Look Up. Excuse me, I don't think you heard me. I just said we're all 100% for sure certain going to freaking die. Yes. And in other news, the Red Sox... But on balance, we seem to be making progress. Jan recently appeared at the Oxford Union, taking the House side of a debate on the proposition that AI is an existential threat. As far as I can tell, that has yet to be published online, but keep an eye open for it and hopefully it will come out soon. He's quite tireless and ubiquitous in the pursuit of delivering his message, appearing recently in forums ranging from the Bangladesh Startup Summit to Al Jazeera and Newsweek. In today's news, ripped from the headlines about AI, this one is pretty amazing. A study by Chinese researchers showed that including phrases such as you'd better be sure or this is important for my career in prompts improved the performance of large language models. In their words, quote, Our automatic experiments show that LLMs have a grasp of emotional intelligence and their performance can be improved with emotional prompts. End quotes. They studied six LLMs, including ChatGPT, Llama 2, and GPT-4. The paper is titled, Large Language Models Understand and Can Be Enhanced by Emotional Stimuli. Do a Google search for it, and you should find it on archive.org. It does not appear to have yet been peer-reviewed. This is one of those news items that brings me no joy to reveal because it offends me on two levels. First, as a computer scientist, it is simply embarrassing to have to admit that a computer performs better when you intimidate it. And secondly, as a human being, uh, okay, that's not to impute a Venn diagram there that excludes computer scientists from the category of human beings. You know what I mean. The idea that I should have to behave like a domineering boss or whiny codependent to get AI to do the right thing is inviting me into a toxic relationship that I'd rather not practice, regardless of who or what is on the other end. So I hope that this is considered a bug in LLMs and that their creators fix it as soon as possible. On another note about this, in my 2017 book, Crisis of Control, I introduced the concept of what I called conscious artificial intelligence, and I used that term in a projection that I made sometime later, and that of a timeline of the impact of certain technologies that could affect most or all of the humans on the planet. Roman Yampolsky asked me what I meant by conscious AI, and I said that I thought of it as AI that was programmed more by arguing with it than through writing software. I don't think that I want to call these LLMs conscious, but I will note that we have now met my definition. So in the grand tradition of moving the goalposts for artificial general intelligence, I guess I'll have to come up with a different way of judging the arrival of what I will call conscious AI. Next week, my guests will be Paul D. Odermans and Dev Aditya, who have built a digital human AI teacher. That's next week on AI and You. Until then, remember, no matter how much computers learn how to do, it's how we come together as humans that matters. 
That's all for this episode of AI and You. Please leave a rating and comment and share with your friends. Get the book Artificial Intelligence and You and see more videos and articles at AIandYou.net. That's A-I-A-N-D-Y-O-U.net, where you can also send us your questions. Thank you for listening.